that's not to say that I don't have my own tornadoes. I want to be real clear on that. And in talking to other advocates, we all laugh that, you know, I'll be having a tornado over the fact that I can't open the bag that my coffee beans can't came in, <laughs> uh, losing it. And then suddenly I get a crisis call and it's like, you know, you immediately drop in because you've developed, it's like a switch that flips when you do this work to where you're able to drop into a different kind of presence. Mm. Um, mm. And then hang up the call, debrief for a little bit and go back to you know, crying about my coffee beans. So, you know. oh, gosh, I'm glad that I'm not the only one. <laughs> Welcome to the Multi Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So, whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. Hey listeners, I'm jumping in with a quick content warning about today's episode. So we are going to be talking about abuse, violence, sexual assault, and survivorhood. If you're in a place where you're feeling like you need more resources, um, or if you listen to the entire episode and would like some resources after, there's a lot out there, but we highly recommend going to loveisrespect.org to get information and support. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about polyamory and intimate partner violence with Christy Croft. Christy is a violence prevention trainer with over a decade of experience as a crisis hotline advocate, answering hotlines, leading support groups, and providing hospital and legal accompaniment for survivors. Croft's current work brings together their lived experience, years of direct service, and community-based consent and prevention education work, as well as graduate study in social justice, human rights, and gender theory. Wow, that's a lot. Thank you so much for being here. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, Christy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so just to set the stage a little bit, um, this episode's going to be coming out uh, last week of October. Uh, provided we don't mess anything up on our end with the scheduling. And October is um, Domestic Violence Awareness Month um, or Intimate Partner Violence Awareness Month. Is that correct? Yes. So most people call it Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And sometimes we use Intimate Partner Violence just to make sure we're clarifying that that could apply to people even if they don't live in the same home together. So dating violence would fall under Intimate Partner Violence. Right, that see. makes sense. And when I hear domestic violence, I also think of like child abuse and things like that. But when I hear mm-hmm. intimate partner violence, I think of romantic partners. Do, uh, are they a little different or do they all kind of refer to the same stuff? They are. So domestic violence, frequently when we think of domestic violence, we are thinking about partners who live together. But domestic violence is any violence between people who live in the same home. So it can include roommates or um, children, whereas intimate partner violence is specific to people who are in an intimate relationship with each other. Got it. Okay. So they kind of overlap, but aren't necessarily Mm -hmm. interchangeable. Okay. That's good to know. I Mm -hmm. never knew that. Yeah. So some of our listeners might know you from our patron Facebook group, but for those who (laughs) don't, uh, can you talk a little bit more about yourself, how you got into these lines of work, things like that? Sure. So I started doing crisis work. Actually, I started doing crisis work on a suicide and self-harm hotline in 1994. Um, But I did start doing specific to partner and sexual violence in 2009. I was a volunteer at my local rape crisis center. And so I did hotlines answering those late night calls from people who were in crisis to listen to them frequently did hospital accompaniment with them as well. So I would go to the hospital while people were having rape kits done so they wouldn't have to be alone. And so I could kind of talk them through the process and keep them company when the nurses were in the other room. And um, also doing um, court and law enforcement accompaniment. So going to sit with someone and just hold space for them while they're giving a statement or testifying or having a court date. Um, And I love doing that work so much that I ended up getting trained to facilitate support groups as well. And so the group I primarily did was the um, sexuality and intimacy after assault group, which was a group for survivors of sexual violence, whether it was child abuse, child sexual abuse, or as an adult who wanted to get more reconnected with their bodies sexually and with partners and in a way that felt safe. So I did that for 
um, years and did some community-based um, prevention work and consent education, sexual health education. Really loved doing that. And while most of my work focused on sexual violence, that often happens in the context of dating relationships. And so all of us in both of those fields, domestic violence and sexual violence, get cross-trained mm-hmm. extensively. Wow. So I, I want to highlight something because you mentioned I just absolutely love this work and have loved, you know, the work that I've done. And um, I think to most people hearing your CV essentially be like, wow, sounds like tough job and kind of a drag maybe. <laughs> and in my own experience working with clients, I could probably make some guesses about like what it is about this work that you love, but I would love to hear directly from you what the kind of what the pearls have been here doing this kind of work. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that I want to be clear about is, is I don't come into this work to get my own healing. I come into this work to support others in their healing, but I'm also a survivor of every form of violence that I work in. And so um, that was a while back. And so I'm in a better place. You know, healing is nonlinear. So there are still days when, you know, it doesn't feel like I'm at the advanced level for sure. But I feel like now that I'm in a, a reasonably stable place in my life, there's something about being able to be with someone during a really um, vulnerable and frightening time, um, knowing what that feels like to be in that uncertainty and that fear and to not not only not know if you're what to expect in your environment, but to also be feeling a little out of control with yourself um, in the midst of that trauma. There's something about being able to sort of be a grounding presence that is really um, fulfilling and feels good. Uh, There have been people who were there for me and still are on days that I'm struggling when I'm feeling especially raw and vulnerable. And I know how much I appreciate that grounding presence of someone who's not in the tornado with me. Hmm. Gosh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Sorry, we just got real deep real fast. And I love it. I love it. Um, be, I mean, yeah, it, it makes me think of, gosh, who was it? I'm going to totally botch who it was. Was it Eugene Gendlin? Probably not. Um, probably not. Somebody said, somebody wise <laughs> said that, you know, the definition of benevolence is, you know, when you've kind of carved out a corner where you can get grounded and, and resourced. And I guess, like you're saying, stepping out of that tornado, where you can essentially offer that to someone who is in the tornado, you know, who is spinning, mm-hmm. who is floundering or, or who is, uh, you know, dealing with something just like so immensely disorienting um, that, that, that is what benevolence is. So, yeah, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it feels, it, it's, it's a nice um, gift to be able to provide that for someone. And, you know, that's not to say that I don't have my own tornadoes. I want to be real clear on that. And in talking to other advocates, we all laugh that, you know, I'll be having a tornado over the fact that I can't open the bag that my coffee beans can't came in, <laughs> uh, losing it. And then suddenly I get a crisis call and it's like, you know, you immediately mm-hmm. drop in because you've developed, it's like a switch that flips when you do this work to where you're able to drop into a different kind of presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then hang up the call, debrief for a little bit, and go back to, you know, crying about my coffee beans. So, you <laughs> oh, know. gosh, I'm glad that I'm not the only one <laughs> who goes through that, that flip switch. <laughs> oh gosh. So, okay. So, so in getting into this episode, and kind of to to start us all off with kind of a basic foundation first, uh, could we go over just some of the the basics? of intimate partner violence, like what that is, what some of the common like patterns of power and control are, just kind of like lay that framework. And then we'll go on to talk about that a little more specifically about non-monogamy, polyamory, queer relationships, things like that. Sure. So partner violence, partner abuse happens anytime that there is a pattern of power and control that's used for like a pattern of behavior, of manipulation, of threats and fear and coercion, Uh, sometimes just subtle gaslighting that's consistent that one partner uses to maintain a position of power over another to make sure they're getting what they need and want out of the relationship. Um, and that their partner stays um, giving them, stays in the relationship and stays giving them what they need. And so it's interesting because when we think about um, our criminal code for um, domestic violence, we tend to think of incidences 
someone hit someone, someone punched a wall, someone yelled at someone, someone blocked your freedom of movement and wouldn't let you out the door. And those are, in fact, um, harmful things to do to someone. Uh, however, um, one of the, the interesting things to come out of LGBTQ partner violence study and advocacy is recognition of the fact that sometimes even survivors engage in those incidences as part of trying to survive abuse. And that's something that keeps people from coming forward when they can look back and remember that time they punched the wall um, or that they wouldn't let their partner leave and, and are afraid of that coming to light or maybe questioning themselves. Um, this is why it's really important to remember while an abusive incident is still not okay, that when we want to look at, at intimate partner violence and its dynamics, you need to pull back a little bit and look at the context in which it happens. And so we're looking for a pattern of power and control. We're looking at things like who is making themselves smaller to avoid escalating their partner, who is changing their life and their routines to avoid making their partner anxious, um, who is cutting off contact or limiting contact with the other important people in their life so that their partner will still you know, treat them kindly. Um, so, so I think sometimes focusing on incidences, it can be helpful in some situations, but it can also distract us from the overall pattern. Police don't come out to your house if they get called on a DV call and say, you know, um, so tell me about the last six months of your life and your everyday dynamics, who talks in certain ways. They come out and say, who, who did this one thing tonight that we got called here for? Um, but when we're looking at supporting survivors and identifying violence and helping survivors to understand if they're in an abusive situation, it's important to remember the the pattern. Yeah, it's interesting to look at this on kind of a macro cultural level. I feel like in American culture, in Western culture in general, we really gravitate towards things that are very black and white and we love black and whites and there's this sense of you know it's just so much more for some reason appealing or understandable to us if we can have someone who's abusive and violent and they're 100 percent evil always abusive always violent and we have like a 100 percent innocent victim on the other side when in reality, that's pretty much never how it goes. You know, it's like mm -hmm. the person who is abusive and violent or controlling or gaslighting or manipulative, of course, uh, has moments where they're also a good person or kind or compassionate or affectionate or loving. And then same thing on the side of the survivor or the victim that, like you said, there's so many incidences where it's like, oh, well, I, I didn't behave well either. You know, I also yelled, I also screamed, I also punched the wall or pushed my partner away or whatever, you know, and I, I feel like that, um, I wouldn't necessarily call that the crux of the issue, but I do see that being such an obstacle towards cycles changing or people getting help or systems changing because we still, I feel like we're still very much attached to this idea of you know, the 100% evil abuser and the 100% innocent, blameless victim when when we mm -hmm. don't actually have real life examples of how that of that playing out that way. And that harms people on all sides of it. So it harms people who are abusing their partners because they don't want to come forward to get help for what they're doing, because then they have mm -hmm. to take on this stigma of being a monster. But it also harms survivors because abusers then turn around, people who are abusive or harm doers then turn around and weaponize that narrative against the survivor by saying things like, you punch the wall, you're abusive. Hmm. And especially when there's already a pattern of gaslighting and someone struggling to really know if they can trust their reality, having a partner point to your behaviors and things you've done and say, actually, you're the one who's abusive can be even more disorienting and confusing. Um, and that's where it's important. Another distinction, I know incidences and patterns is a, is a good distinction, but another one is harm and abuse. Not all harm is abuse. Um, and so all of us are capable of enacting harm or harming other people at different points. All of us are capable of, um, for a variety of reasons, slipping into our trauma and causing harm to someone, sometimes even unintentionally. Uh, and sometimes just because we're being trauma babies. I mean... I, everybody does that. I have a, a friend who I respect deeply who um, was recently sharing with me about an experience with someone who was really giving her a hard time. And she, she told me 
as I was hearing him say this, I was feeling this impulse come up in me to like twist the situation some and to say, that's not how it worked and to try to deny things. And then I realized that would be gaslighting if I said that. So I stopped myself and that was mind boggling to me because it's the first time I've ever had anyone who is someone I love and respect and don't think of as someone who's abusive at all discuss the fact that sometimes we have that impulse come up to be Mm -hmm. like, oh, you're wrong. That's not really how it went down because we're defending ourselves. Right, right. Ever since you said, sorry to take this on this tangent, but ever since you said trauma babies, (laughs) I'm hearing it with like the Muppet Babies theme song in my my head. (laughs) Um, But to bring us back, uh, to bring us back. uh, Yeah, you talking about the looking at isolated incidences versus looking at patterns you said came out of like our study of LGBTQ partner violence study. And so Mm -hmm. I am curious to hear a little bit more about, you know, why is it that studying queer relationships and, um, you know, partner violence that happens in that context, like what are kind of the different things that we've learned from that that's different from looking at just like heterosexual relationships? Yeah. So we know, you know, when we look at the history of the partner violence um, narratives, we have this this assumed narrative that it is a woman who is being abused by a man. And that's just the assumption that that's how it always is. And so if there's fighting and escalating, and and again, we're looking at these criminal justice framings that then seep their way into our, our general understanding of an issue, when they come out, they know who they're coming out to help and who they're coming out to talk to or arrest. Mm. There's an assumption there. And so what happened is once we started getting more information out there um, about um, partner violence and LGBTQ communities and um, in same-sex relationships, if they got called out, it's like, who do we, we don't know, we don't have a framework for understanding who's the harm doer because they're both saying the other one caused harm. Mm -hmm. They're both making these accusations against each other. How do we know how to navigate this? Some states even at that point had mandatory arrest laws to where as a cooling down measure, if they co- if they get called in some states to a DV call, they know they have to arrest one of them to separate them for the night. Wow. And so oh, wow. what happens oh, when you come out to a same sex couple who's having a domestic dispute and you know you need to arrest somebody, but you're not sure who. And in a lot of cases, they would just arrest both of them. Oh, my God. Um, which is not. It's not a trauma informed or realistic way to approach the situation. So. Um, agencies came up that are doing this partner violence and sexual violence work specifically in LGBTQ communities. Um, I know the network Lared in Boston is one in our own voices in Albany, New York. Um, and then there's one called the Northwest network. They have a full name that I can never remember the Northwest network of bisexual, lesbian, and gay survivors. Um, but they started doing some research into it and, had to dig into the issue of what do we do when two people who are in a relationship are accusing each other of engaging in abuse, because that's a common thing for someone who um, is in fact abusing their partner to turn around and level that, throw that accusation back. So what do we do? How do we, how do we discern who is um, the one being abused and who is the one abusing their partner? And so they developed these screening tools and and had to dig in a little bit deeper. That's where we start to see things about um, incidents versus patterns. So if you call an LGBTQ specific hotline and you say, mm-hmm. I'm being abused, my partner did this thing, then they're going to ask you, you know, they're going to validate you. Yeah, that, that sounds like that was really um, frightening for you. Tell me a little more about how that happened. What was going on? And they're going to give you a chance to share some context because sometimes when you get the context, it's a little more complicated and that helps you understand how to support that person. Um, Which also means we have to have a framework in which we want to support people who've caused harm uh, in accountability and not just see them as monsters or throwaway people. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that a little bit later because that's also a whole, (laughs) a whole conversation. Yeah. So, okay, let's, and move into polyamory specifically, because I'm assuming that while people have looked at LGBTQ frameworks, it's less common to be looking at polyamorous frameworks and having an additional person or multiple people kind of within this intimate partner partner violence, um, kind of what happens with that. And can you talk about 
polyamorous traps that are sort of unique to non-traditional relationships and things that potentially can uh, lay a foundation for abuse? Sure. Sure. So um, some of the things that we that we have that are similar to LGBTQ um, partner violence situations is not all of us are out. Um, And especially when we have people who have children involved or jobs or communities where they can't be out, that threat to out you can be part of the abuse. A partner can threaten to out you if you um, if you leave them or if you um, call them out on being abusive, they can say they're going to leave you. Another thing that's um, kind of kind of different in polyamory is people define their relationships differently. So especially when we're looking at situations where people are relationship anarchists in some form, what's a partner? Like, how do we count who is and isn't a partner for understanding what's an abusive dynamic? We also have a lack of clarity in the movement about what abuse is. So um, Mm. that's something that comes up a lot is many of us, when we're new to polyamory, especially have that feeling of this is uncomfortable. My partner's seeing someone else. They're out on a date. I'm really uncomfortable. And the standard dialogue in the the polyamory community is to say, oh, you just sit with that discomfort and keep working through it and things get better. And what happens is sometimes people are experiencing discomfort that's coming from something a little more significant or a, a situation where their voice isn't being heard or they're being silenced or they're being controlled. And they're not really sure how to frame it because abuse survivors don't always come forward and say, I'm being abused. Hmm. Because for a long time, you're in that gray area, that middle ground where in your mind, you're like, is is this abuse? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what's happening. And then you say to your friends who are in the polyamory community, I'm feeling uncomfortable or I'm really feeling like I'm not a priority to my partner. And they're like, we all feel that way in the beginning. Mm. And so mm-hmm. you struggle between like, how much do I need to normalize what I'm experiencing and sort of desensitize myself to it? And how much can I really name it as being harmful? It's really hard. Um, and you have stigmas polyamory. attached to that it, yes. potentially as well with even coming out and saying that you feel bad or upset or like something's wrong. Yes. So, and, we, and then you're in that situation where you can't talk about that to your friends who aren't polyamorous mm. because they think you're just, well, the whole thing's abusive. You know, who would want to do that? That's just not a healthy relationship. You know, they're kind of, they've got their own assumptions about polyamory. And then you reach out to your friends within the polyamorous community and they're like, oh, it's normal to feel that way. You just need to move past it. Um, you know, you, you can't really get the kind of compassionate support you need on either side. Um, You might have guilt. That's another thing unique to polyamory is you might have guilt around um, opening an existing relationship. And that might make you feel like you're not providing your partner um, who's the relationship you're opening. You might feel like you're not providing that partner with their needs um, and and what they want out of the relationship, which can then cause you to rationalize giving into them if their demands start to be unreasonable Mm -hmm. because you feel guilt. Um, so you want to try to fix that uh, in a way that can then give them power over you. Uh, it can mm. make you fearful, you know, and and like you said a moment ago, that stigma, you don't want to say that you're hurt and you also don't want to acknowledge that you're hurting your partner. So if you have a partner who you're in a situation and they're saying this hurts, you kind of want to say, no, I'm not hurting you. Like it's hard to tell how much are you how much are you holding on to your own stuff and holding your own boundaries? And how much are you just not listening to a partner uh, in a way that is harmful to them? It's just really tricky. And then you add an external control. If you have another partner who's getting to make decisions about your relationship, that can be another slippery mm. slope that leads to harm. And not just in veto power, there's situations where people who don't have veto power over whether or not you get to date someone might still have veto power over all sorts of little tiny things in the relationship uh, mm. from who gets a sleepover when to um, other things in the relationship that then lead you to feel like you can't control what's happening in your own relationship. Like it's not even about what's happening with your partner, um, yeah. which can, again, all of these sometimes can happen in healthy relationships because we're just navigating conflict. And all of these exist across a spectrum that converge into abusive behavior. 
and abusive patterns. And that's what makes it so hard is where in that spectrum can we, do we, do we know we've gone from harm to abuse? And that's a confusing thing to tease out uh, as someone who's inadvertently causing harm to a partner and as someone who's experiencing partner harm. Yeah, that that starts to make a lot of sense as I'm thinking about it um, in that kind of patterns versus looking at incidences situation, because, yeah, I, I feel like both in us running the podcast and seeing what people post in the patron group and also other non-monogamy groups and also in my own work with clients, it's like you can have an incident, you know, let's say it's an isolated incident of like, yeah, my partner went out on a date and then said that they'd be home at 11 um, and then didn't respond to my text messages, turned off their phone, actually came back at six in the morning, you know, and as an isolated incident, it's so hard to tell. Was that just a flub? Was it like a newbie flub? Were there extenuating circumstances? Uh, Was that something that happens all the time? Was that part of a much bigger cycle of toxicity and abuse? It's so hard to tell from just like that one incident that could be on like maybe on the positive side, somebody just really made a major mess up, stumbled out the gate, you know, and they can repair that. Or it could be just another symptom of something that's much more serious and toxic going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing I would say to that is, I think sometimes as survivors, we gaslight ourselves because we've Mm -hmm. been gaslit so much to where we think, is it abuse? Because if it's abuse, I'll leave. If it's abuse, I'll leave. If it's not, then I can keep working on it. Uh, when the reality is we don't need it to rise to the level of abuse. For If something's uncomfortable, you can leave. <laughs> you know, there, you don't have to get to the point where you have to label it abuse to give yourself permission to leave. If it's not good, leave. Um, you know, so that's that's where that pattern, maybe you aren't sure if it's a pattern that rises to the level to call it abuse, but if it doesn't feel good, don't you don't have to stay, you know, you can give yourself permission to leave a situation that doesn't feel safe or healthy or consistent. If those are things that, that you need and want in your life, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, it was interesting. What jumped out to me before when you were talking about this um, and you mentioned about boundaries and how something like, Oh, well, this is a boundary. So this is how I'm acting can be just another way of, exercising control over someone else, but using fancy words for it so that you're the, you're the good guy and they're the bad guy, or, you know, that it reminds me a little bit of something we just talked about recently on our episode about going to therapy, about how couples therapy can actually sometimes do more harm than good if there's an abusive dynamic, because the abuser Mm -hmm. just learns better tools for how to do it more subtly or how to justify it or how to use different language while they do it. And I think that within the world of non-monogamy, where it seems like most people are a little more proactive than your, your average kind of cisgender heterosexual couple about like, I want to learn terms. I want to learn what's right and wrong, what, you know, how you should do this because it's new, because we don't really have models for it. And so, it's almost as if there's more opportunities to learn those things. And I would say that then to, to go back to what you were saying before about uh, that, then we end up in this problem if we're trying to just say, well, if someone's abusing, then they are a monster. They're an abuser and they're terrible is that we can end up in this situation where someone could end up being abusive by trying to use some terms or tools that they learned about without like setting out with that intention. It's not like we tend to think of abusers as coming from this like very sinister movie villain, like I'm going to figure out the best way to control them in this way, but it's often much more subtle to slip into that. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think just that, like the tendency to paint people black and white, but then also the tendency to be like, well, if this thing fits this label, it's therefore good. And if it fits this label, it's therefore bad. Like, you know, like you mentioned too, with hierarchy, like, oh, well, we're, we're not hierarchical and we don't have veto. So therefore we can't do any wrong in that territory. Mm. <laughs> it's like, well, no, mm-hmm. you still very much can have <laughs> veto like power or, you know, by, by throwing a fit or whatever, when they're going to do something with someone else or there's just, it's just so not black mm-hmm. and white. And I just, mm-hmm. I think that can't be, that can't be overstated. <laughs> like That's just so important from everything that you've been talking about here. 
Yeah, there's a book that's not not a polyamory book, but it's, it touches on that, what you just brought up, and it's called The Revolution Starts at Home. Mm-hmm. And it's a book looking at intimate partner violence in um, activists and social justice communities. Mm-hmm. And in those communities, similar to what you were talking about in polyamory, we believe, like there's a belief that we know better. Like we have these tools, we have, we have, you cannot be polyamorous, at least not for long without like so much communication. We have so much good communication skills. None of us are ever going to abuse anybody. I go to nonviolent communication workshops with my partners and like, you know, you, you assume that because you have these progressive values, I mean, that's one of the traps is believing that polyamory is inherently somehow more progressive or enlightened um, when it might just not be a good match for some people and other people might think that it's exactly how they want to live their life. But when we, when we put it on this pedestal and think it's more enlightened, then we're less likely to self-examine in ways that help us to look in, at our relationships and see them for what they are. Um, you know, mainstream polyamory discourse doesn't talk very much about abuse. Uh, it doesn't talk a whole yeah. lot about mental health. How do you navigate relationships when you have a massive trauma history or um, there's other other stuff going on. Just because you are um, a feminist or polyamorous or um, progressive or don't have veto power or non-hierarchical or a relationship anarchist, any of these things can be tools of abuse in the hands of someone who is inclined and, and believes they can manipulate a partner into into doing what they want. I mean, a hammer is not a hammer is designed to hammer nails and also can do a lot of damage in the hands of someone whose intention is to do harm. And those, those skills sometimes do give us new tools for harming a partner. If someone is abusive, someone uh, I mediated, um, I didn't mediate, but I facilitated some conversations in a local um, group where um, they teach nonviolent communication and someone had experienced abuse and was, and, was highlighting the fact that someone who has training in some of these tools, nonviolent communication, um, what was it that you mentioned, Jason? Like boundaries, to remember these, or, these boundaries, a yeah. lot of language around therapy language around boundaries can, if they choose, can then kind of twist those in a way that it becomes part of the abuse. Um, yeah, yeah, that's such a slippery thing. Um, that hammer analogy is really apt. You know, I think that's part of the reason why we find ourselves repeating often on the show, the whole moniker of don't weaponize this shit, please. Mm, You know, because of realizing that it's like a communication tool or a relationship tool can be an amazing, groundbreaking, fascinating, helpful tool that can also be used in really awful ways. And there's Mm. no tool that you can just like always default fall back on. That's going to make, a toxic abusive relationship feel less toxic and abusive, you know? Um, and I think, and that's just such a tricky thing. You know, I, I do feel, um, I want to speak just a little bit, we've kind of already covered this ground, but I want to speak a little bit to the stuff that you've highlighted already about, you know, we have this cultural belief sometimes that polyamory or non-monogamy is inherently progressive or inherently enlightened. And then the binary to that is the cultural belief that non-monogamy is inherently abusive, inherently destructive. Um, you know, that that also serves to become yet another further obstacle for people to kind of get out of these kind of cycles or these kind of behaviors, because at least I've also seen something very similar in the LGBTQ community. There is this sense of like, I'm here having to be a representative <laughs> for something much bigger than me, a community much bigger than me. You know, if I'm the only trans person in my hometown that people know, and I end up in a situation like this, then that's always going to be forever linked to my transness, potentially, you know, that, um, I don't know. I, I know, I know definitely like speaking from my own personal experience, like also being a survivor of intimate partner violence within a polyamorous context, that that was probably one of the biggest things that held me back from getting help for a very, very long time, both in the relationship and after the relationship is just like, you know, I'm going to go to my fear was that I'm going to go to some kind of group therapy and everyone's going to explain to me how I brought this on myself because I, I chose to be polyamorous with a particular person, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I'm sure that's something that you've run up against in your work. Definitely. 
especially in people who open, I mean, it can happen with anyone, but a dynamic with people who open an existing relationship and then a new relationship turns out to be abusive. There's that self shame, Hmm. that fear that people are going to say to you, you already had one healthy partner. Why did you need to do this? Like we don't understand, or you may question that this wasn't a real relationship. There's a cultural expectation that, that, that you've got your real relationship. And then this other relationship wasn't even a real relationship that's a similar dynamic to an LGBTQ um, in, in same-sex partnerships to where you have this um, perception that people in your community might not even see what you had as a real relationship. And that could keep you from being able to access um, not just services, um, but also compassion and support from people. You may have already been alienated from some of your family and friends because of being polyamorous. Again, another parallel to what we see in LGBTQ um, studies of partner violence, you may already have lost some of your supports just by coming out. And so you have reduced access to support. And if your primary support is in your polyamory community, then you have the added layer of fearing that conflict and that should you come out is going to deprive you of access to your primary source of support and community that, that these, I mean, I don't know about where you live, but where I live, we all the poly, there's not a ton of polyamorous people. We all know each other, so you cannot navigate this in a way that doesn't cause ripples that can then cause fear about um, losing your your community. Do who's going to get access to the community? What if the community doesn't believe me and my yeah. um, partner who abused me is the one that that stays in community? And I I feel like I have to leave. Maybe I should leave in advance. So that I don't have to deal with that fear of rejection. So there's all sorts of ways that it can keep you from coming forward. And a lot of um, service providers who do counseling support groups and shelters for survivors of partner violence may not have a whole lot of training or knowledge around polyamory. They may not even know what they're dealing with. So you go to get therapy from a therapist who who may not know as much about polyamory and you spend more of your time educating them and saying, no, that's not mm-hmm. quite right. Yeah. Uh, then you do mm-hmm. actually getting support. Uh, and it could be the same in a, in a DV shelter or um, partner violence support group, for example. Yeah. And then the, on the other side too, I know that there can be a hesitance to talk to your community about experiencing abuse. If you assume that, if the community hears that, they are going to just destroy and tear down and vilify and maybe enact their own abuse upon that person, thinking they're helping you, even if that's not what you want. Like, I, I feel like I've seen that pattern also play out many times where the person who comes forward is fairly clear about what they do and don't want to be done. And everyone's like, oh, no, 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 we'll take care of this for you. We're going to do what we think should be done. Yes. And that's... <laughs> ironically and horribly is in a sense acting another type of abuse or violence on that person who's already the survivor. Absolutely. And then that causes us to limit who we talk to. So I know when I went through my own um, partner violence situation, I didn't want to talk to anybody about it or tell anyone what had happened, who I did not feel could hold the complexity of the situation. Which meant I had only a small number of people I felt safe talking to because if I told someone this person did this to me and their response is, what a jerk, I hate him, you know, and they just go off that in that moment was not what I needed or wanted. I didn't, I didn't need validation on that front. I needed comfort and Mm. that did not feel like comfort to me. I did have one friend, um, a mutual friend who was lovely and they came up to me and, and they had a background working in DV. So this is unsurprising, but they said to me, uh, how would you like me to support you? Mm. And what I said was, I don't want you to stop being their friend. Uh, but what I do want you to do is to hold them accountable. I don't want them. I know that this person in terms of their recovery and healing and ability to take accountability, they're going to need community support to do that because all isolation does is drive us deeper into shame. Uh, And we can't control whether or not someone chooses to isolate. So that's not in our control, but I didn't want anyone to do that on my account. And uh, this mutual friend said to me, you know, I, I am not going to stop being their friend on your account, but I also do have some pretty strong beliefs about staying friends 
with people who are abusive and won't take accountability. And so over time, if they lose me as a friend, that will be their doing, not yours. Yeah. Uh, wow. And that felt validating to me because, because I, that's great. Yeah. I, it's a great I don't want to isolate someone. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, we're going to discuss even more, uh, get into common questions, get into some advice and support. Um, But before we do that, we wanted to take a moment to talk about some of the ways in which you can support this show and keep it coming to you all for free. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's multi, M-U-L-T-I, at adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast, and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. Lovely. So we've talked uh, about some of the dynamics that people can get into and sort of those feelings of, wait a minute, is this abuse? Is this not? I don't really know how to parse that apart and figure it out. So are there kind of tools that are out there other than just maybe sitting with it and like seeing the patterns over time? I guess maybe that's the biggest one, but are there other tools that you talk to people about or that you yourself have used maybe or um, it, just to try to tell whether or not it's an abusive relationship or just kind of a dysfunctional, shitty relationship? <laughs> you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, and again, I've mentioned the shortcomings because they may not be super well trained on polyamory, but just talking this over with someone on a partner violence hotline. Um, sometimes there may be a situation where there are polyamory dynamics that need to be explained because that's part of the abuse. Uh, but if someone is uncomfortable revealing that piece on their first call, they don't have to. You can reveal what you feel comfortable revealing to get support. And you can always call ahead and ask if um, their case managers, um, shelter staff, therapists have experience with polyamory, if they know how to respond to that. Those hotline um Hotline people are amazing in DV agencies. They really do a good job of asking you the right questions and helping you talk through it. Uh, making sure if you go to therapy that you have a therapist who is not only competent with polyamory and any other identities you have, but also competent with recognizing pow- power and control patterns, specifically in a therapeutic setting. Uh, that is one thing I'm, I'm glad to hear you mentioned that you talked about how abuse and therapy can just empower. I mean, therapy for someone who's in an abusive relationship can empower the person who's enacting abuse against their partner to have new language and frameworks for it. Another thing that can happen is if a therapist doesn't have a whole lot of the backstory on this relationship and doesn't have a really fine tuned sensor to abuse dynamics they can abuse you right in front of a therapist by bringing up past stories and leaving out context and um, putting you on the defensive where suddenly you're starting to to feel defensive in the therapy setting and hearing yourself talk and realizing that you sound uh, like someone who's denying wrongdoing for harm that they've done. Um, so, So it can be even in the therapy setting that there's a spin. So Finding a therapist who has a lot of experience with uh, abusive relationship dynamics can be another really good support to have someone to talk it through. 
And then having friends that you that that know how to hold complexity and can just listen to you can be really helpful because a lot of times we talk our way to our own solutions. Um, mm. A lot of times people offering us solutions can kind of steer us away from our own inner knowing and our ability to, to find what's right for us in that moment. And so having friends that you know you can lean into to talk about complicated things who aren't going to tell you what to do, um, that can be helpful. And honestly, getting into a mindset to where you know we, we don't have to label it abuse in order to take actions to, to feel safer, to get ourselves out of situations that don't feel good. There may be a relationship that you just cut your losses and are like, I'm out. Was it abusive? I don't know right now. Mm. Maybe in another year yeah. or two, I'll have more clarity on that. But I don't need to stay somewhere that I'm that I'm not safe. And then safety planning, safety planning for contingencies. If you're, um, and that's something where the DV agencies are really good at helping you safety plan because we also know that leaving an abusive relationship is a time when you're at risk for escalated violence. So making sure that that in that. Um, discussion that you have some ideas around safety planning that you bring someone in who can help you think through what can keep you safest uh, if you do leave. You mentioned earlier on some screening tools and things that have been created through researching intimate partner violence in the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, Are those Mm -hmm. things that, that only therapists can do? Are there ones that people could use themselves? What, are, are there any resources about those out there to help yeah. determine that? So the specific screening tool that was coming to my mind is one that they want to train providers on before they I give see. it to you, just to make sure that people aren't playing, aren't learning to game the system. Yeah, <laughs> um, no, that makes sense. Yeah. But um, they, there are several, you know, you can go online and find checklists from reputable sources that give you just some red flags to be aware of. And obviously a red flag doesn't mean that something is in fact abusive. It's just when you see enough of them, you're looking at a pattern again. Um, some of the things just looking at how you feel when you're with someone. Do you feel like you know what reality is when you're in a relationship with this person is a really good Mm. self-check. I will give Mm. the caveat that for sometimes people with complex trauma, we can have trauma responses in relationships that are not abusive because that's something that we're still working on in our, in our nervous system and in our body. And so having a trauma response to a situation is not always uh, an accurate gauge of whether or not it's uh, an unsafe situation if you have a high trauma history. But looking at the overall pattern, do I feel generally safer with this person than unsafe? Do I feel heard and listened to? Do I feel like I am allowed my reality without them wanting to pick it apart every time I express myself to them? Um, These are all some things that you can kind of look to. And if the answer to any of those suggests that it's not a healthy relationship, you know, then whether or not you can convince yourself in that moment that it's abuse, sometimes you don't know. Sometimes something feels abusive while you're in it. And then you get out a few years later and you're like, eh, we were, that was just kind of a bad relationship. It's pretty toxic all around. Mm -hmm. I don't know that maybe it was abuse in retrospect now that I have some space. And then there's other situations where you leave it. You just thought it was a bad relationship, really toxic. And over time, you start to look back on it and say, oh, my gosh, that was that was abuse. And I didn't even realize it. How did I not realize that? I, th- I think just real quick, it's worth mentioning that in either case, getting out of that relationship is the right thing to do. And so yeah. if anyone <laughs> is out there listening to this going, mm, I don't know if it's abuse. I don't know if I should break up Get or out. in this relationship. It's like, no, just just do it. Like, it'll be better for both of you either way. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that's the takeaway. Like, I feel like sometimes we get so wrapped up in like, is it, is it not? Is it, is it not? If it feels bad enough that on a regular basis, you're questioning whether or not it's abuse, you probably need to leave. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Whether it is or not. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I also, I want to rewind just a tiny bit to highlight something that you said, just kind of for the sake of all our listenership. I know something that really held me back from talking to anybody, professional friend, whoever, is I made the assumption For some reason, I also made this assumption, especially if I call a hotline or I talk to a professional, that the first thing they're going to make me do is break up and blow up my life with Mm. this person, you know? And so, ergo, I cannot 
talk to anybody about this until I'm ready to blow up my life and leave this relationship. Yes. And um, I just want to put that out there uh, to just tell people that's not that's not right. That's not how it is. That's not correct. You know, especially talking to a professional like someone who has training in this, they're not going to be the person who's like, okay, you, you unless you're like in direct danger at that exact moment. You know, they're not going to be the person who's going to be like, okay, you need to blow up your life right now. Um, so yeah, I just I just wanted to you know you mentioned that Christine. I just want to highlight that and make sure that that gets a uh, driven home for all our listeners out there. Yeah. Anyone who works in this field or has training in this field is going to be able to ask you questions that help you figure out what's right for you and when it's right for you. Um, If someone calls a hotline and says, I want to leave, I'm ready to leave, get me out, help me figure this out, then that's what they're going to help you do. But if you call and say, my relationship doesn't feel good, I really just kind of want to process this with someone. They're going to listen to you and process and ask you questions And sometimes people are in the middle where they're like, I know that this is abuse, but I can't leave right now because of X, Y, or Z. And they're going to to hold space for you to have that complexity and talk about it. Hmm. And that's good advice. I mean, as a friend, we all know what it feels like when you're dating someone, whether it's abuse or not, you're dating someone who's maybe not treating you great. And your friend is like, leave, leave now. That does not work. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Use the Triforce <laughs> when talking to your friends about this. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, so if your partner is trying to work through the abuse that maybe they're enacting upon you, or if they are saying, like, I'll change, I'll go to therapy, I'll work on this, is are there ways in which to tell that something is changing, that something is working and moving in a more positive direction. Yeah, I would say a few, a couple of things that come to mind very quickly. One is that while someone's working on it, you don't have to stay in the same kind of relationship with them. True. Um, you can take some space while they do their work. And sometimes it's easier to do both of you to do your work when you have that space. You might get that space and then decide you don't want to continue with the relationship. Um, they may get that space and realize that given the history, they can't be in healthy relationship with you and can't figure out how to. So you don't have to stay in the same kind of relationship with someone. The other thing I would say is show me, don't tell me. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to, I, every person who's ever been abused at any point ever and brought it up to a partner has heard them say, I'll do better. I'll do better. I love you. I'm going to change. Everybody hears that. That's so common. So show me, don't tell me. I want to see it. And I and I don't have to stay in the same relationship with you that I have been until I see that there's change. There are very concrete things they can do to move into an accountability process with you. Uh, one of my favorite models is the pod model of transformative justice by the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. And I've attended some trainings by Mia Mingus, who is wonderful. Uh, The idea with the pod model is you identify not just who's your community, because that's so broad, but you identify who is my pod? Who are the people that I, as a survivor, can call on to support me in my healing and um, be there for me when I'm having a rough time? Uh, support me without uh, encouraging without encouraging me to do irrational things that might cause harm to me. So the people who will pause when you say, I think I'm going to write a letter to their boss and a public call out on social media and this and that, the ones that say, hmm, what are you hoping to get from that? Hmm. Let's talk yeah. about that. How do you think that's going to play out and can kind of like help you think it through? Those are your pod people. But what's unique about this is that the harm doer also has pod people who can support them in accountability while still loving them and holding them with compassion and can still say, this is not cool uh, and can encourage you, can hold you to task. If they see you engaging in that pattern again or talking about your partner in a way that's not cool can say, I don't like the way you're talking about that. If you're doing a formal accountability process, um, your pod people can communicate with each other so that you don't have to communicate with each other. There won't be direct communication. Your pod people can kind of help you proofread that communication before it goes out to say, you know, there's this thing you said that let's talk about a little bit before we, before we send this letter. <laughs> um, and it protects you from having direct contact. 
The other beautiful thing about it is if you are someone who's caused harm of any kind, even if it doesn't rise to the level of abuse, having people who can be in your accountability pod for when you've caused harm while you're doing low level things means that you're building that muscle and those relationships that can support you in larger harm that you caused. And you don't have to wait on a call to accountability to start your accountability pod for harm you've caused. If you know you've Mm. caused harm, even if the survivor says, I never want to see you again, you can still engage a pod of people for you to work through with community support, um, what it means to you to not repeat that, you know, what you want to do. But it's definitely a show, don't tell situation and you need support. Um, very rarely are people successful just saying, I'm going to change. You need to be engaging with a therapist who um, specializes in this, maybe attending a group that can help you um, talk through these issues of power and control and definitely engaging accountability pod friends who are going to hold you accountable and not just tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I think also, something worth pointing out about the pod system is that it was never intended to be something that's done as a public show. And I think for a lot of us, our only experience of accountability pods is it being in news articles or blog posts or on Facebook or something like that. And and like, that's not ever what it was meant to be. So I did just want to throw that out there yes. that, that I think some people it's like, oh God, maybe I'm worried that I'm that I do have some abusive tendencies or I might do these things, but think, Oh no, I could never do a pod. Cause I don't want all of social media to say that I'm a monster now yes. because of like we talked about before. And that's not what it is, right? This is, this is just you and your people to help, help you work on this. That's right. That's interesting that it has become kind of a public forum in, in various ways when it wasn't necessarily meant to be that. Well, you know, means. It, it, what it makes me think of is actually very, very, very early on in my healing process with like one of the first therapists that I worked with, like right out the gate, I'd been out of this abusive relationship for months and I was already just like, oh, like I feel like, oh gosh, I got to talk to people about it. And I got to like make a, like make a post on, on social media and, and like, you know, just tell people like what's going on and, and, you know, kind of declare to the world what's been happening. And, and my therapist, um, said to me, you know, essentially like, you know, you don't have to have a press release for everything necessarily. <laughs> and and I do think that it's it's kind of like just the nature of our lives and our relationship with social media where we default so easily to, oh gosh, now I'm going to have to perform this on the public stage to a certain extent, especially if this is involved in my identity or how I move through the world and stuff like that. And so I do feel that that's kind of just a symptom of that general tendency that we have of Need to, to do a press conference. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone knows Some, yeah. everything about us because we're all on social media yeah. and stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes and, press conferences are great, but not always. And that does mean that for people who are doing their work behind the scenes and not making a public show out of it, we don't always know what's going on. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that is something where we see more high profile people who are engaging in public statements about it because there's community trust and a position of power. Um, you know, and if there's a community leader in a position of power who's doing it more publicly, that might be because they've got a whole community to be accountable to if they want to maintain any um, engagement with that community. A lot of times with everyday people, it's not going to be public. And what that means is those of us as, you know, villagers with pitchforks (laughs) (laughs) need to be aware that we're not always in the loop about what's going on behind closed doors and what someone is doing. Yeah. Again, show, don't tell. We may start to see things that are happening that are red flags that there's not been real accountability, but it's hard for us to judge from afar when we don't know what's going on. Yeah, definitely. I would love, we're we're getting toward the end. I would love to take just a moment to talk about uh, getting support for people who are friends or partners of people who've experienced interpartner violence, intimate partner violence, uh, with, with someone else. Right. So mm-hmm. this was something that like with Dedeker's experience, I found myself in this position of like, I'm not sure what's the most helpful way to react to this, like how to be the most supportive. And 
Dedeker's other partner, Alex, and I talked to each other and like tried to support each other a little bit in this about like how do we how do we react to this? So like we had someone to talk to about kind of our own feelings of frustration or anger or just like not knowing what we're doing, but then also to kind of um work together to be like, oh, I found this resource, oh, I found this other one you know, it seems like we should try to be supportive in this way and not this other way. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm unaware, like, are there resources like that? Like the, that are for the, the supporters and the friends and things. I, I just, I feel like I've picked up little bits here and there from other places and I'm not familiar with a resource for that. And I could have really used one yeah. and probably still could. Frequently. Honest. I mean, because there's so little work being done on polyamory and IPV, you're not going to find great resources on, you know, if your partner's other partner right. is abusing <laughs> yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> That's just That's not, a, we're not yes. at that place in the dialogue. <laughs> that would be great if that were the case, but we're not there. Um, but some of the information you find for what we call secondary survivors, which is parents, roommates, friends, some of that mm. you're going to get some insights from. And a lot of that is broadly available online. Um, I think that there's a distinction too, just between being in a relationship with a partner who has an abusive partner currently and being in a relationship with someone who's experienced partner abuse in the past, especially if it was the recent past. And so currently, um, one, I, I did a lecture on a graduate sexuality studies um, course recently on polyamory and abuse. And one of the questions someone asked me is, how do you navigate protecting yourself and your own boundaries if your partner is being abused, is there a point at which you would feel helpless enough that that would impact your relationship? Hmm. That was a really hard question for me as someone who experienced um, partner violence in a polyamorous context to consider what that was like on my other partners and what that put them through. Um, that really, that, that question brought up a lot of feelings for me. And ultimately, you're going to do the things you can to support your partner. I love the fact that you reached out to someone else to support you because, again, the I forget what the model is called, but where you have like the concentric circles to where you reach for support to someone who's outside of the circle you're in so that mm. you don't ask the person who's experiencing the trauma to also hold space for you and be your support right. about their own trauma that they are going through. Yeah. Um, so the fact that you had a metamor, someone else you could reach out to um, is a really beautiful approach because then you're getting support from someone who also cares very deeply about your partner uh, and knows what you're going through. And yeah. it doesn't put the burden on the person experiencing abuse to, to hold space for you during that. And ultimately it can be really disorienting and scary and hurtful to watch someone you love in a situation that they don't seem to be getting themselves out of. Um, mm -hmm. And to see the harm that's being done to them, that's really overwhelming. And, you know, ultimately people have to make their decisions about, you know, where their own boundaries are. Um, but, but I do like the idea of reaching out to people who are not in that are in your circle or wider, but not in the the closer end circles for support. And then in being in a relationship with someone who has a history of um, partner violence or has experienced that, especially recently, they're going to be a little bit jumpy and you might want to take things a little bit slower and you might need a little more communication. And there might be moments when they're reacting to something that you know wasn't what you did Um Sometimes it's not helpful to point that out in the moment. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's a conversation for after things have cooled off some to say, you mm. know, I really felt like that reaction um, didn't make sense in context and help me understand that more. You know, that might be a, a nice follow up once you're both a little more grounded. But but there there will probably be a little extra work that you'll both have to do um, in that relationship. Um, and in a lot of cases, it can be really worth it and beautiful and sweet and profoundly healing for both of you. Yeah. Well, we would love eventually someday to do a whole other episode that is just about navigating trauma and PTSD within a relationship and non-monogamous relationships specifically, because that is just, that's a whole, um, a whole other conversation, you know, to explore. Well, this has been really lovely, Christy, and I'm so excited to continue to talk to you in our bonus episode, but uh, for our audience, can you tell us where we can find more of you, your work, things like that? 
Sure. I have a website, uh, christycroft.com. I'm most active on Twitter, though. So if you want to follow me, I'm christycroft on Twitter. And I do a lot of um, work on Twitter, a lot of education around partner violence, community accountability, and sex worker rights and human trafficking. Amazing. Lovely. So we are going to jump into our bonus episode and that we are going to talk about things like current systems that need to change in order to better serve survivors from non-traditional relationships and traditional relationships. And then also uh, talking about Christie's community accountability workshops. So lots more to discuss. Um, And we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you thought of this episode And the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. And you can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and you can email us at info at multiamory.com. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanetta. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenewerk and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms, I Know I Did, by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. 